Please take your Bibles now and turn to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 will continue our exposition in this wonderful letter of Paul to the church at Philippi. I believe this is our 10th sermon in the series, and those are available online if you wanted to go back or if you missed one. I'd like to begin with the question today. What is the most disgraceful thing that you have ever done in your life? Just ask yourself the question, what is the, what is the thing that you're embarrassed most about in your life? Maybe it was some relationship that you were involved in that end, ended poorly. Maybe it was a, some crime that you committed. Maybe it was a, a drug addiction in the past or something along those lines. And, and you think, boy, that's the, that's the worst thing that has ever happened in my life. And then you think of the Lord Jesus Christ being eternal Son of God, coming down and stooping down to creation and becoming a man. And that's really what we've been studying in this context of chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, is this humility that we are called to, to do nothing from selfishness. In verse 5, to have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. Of course, there's vast differences between those two comparisons. Jesus himself was sinless. He became the God-man. Martin Luther himself said the mystery of the humanity of Jesus, that he sunk himself into our flesh, is beyond all human understanding. And I confess that as I've been meditating and struggling and studying in the study till 9 o'clock last night, really, on this topic, that, that it is there's some depths to it that, that you just can't get all the way down. There's some gold that you can't fully mine. There's, there's, a, there's a finite mind that cannot understand these amazing things. In the Gospel of John, we just read earlier that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then we know in chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We have many nuggets uh, of discovering the second person of the Holy Trinity and His earthly ministry. His mission for why He came, for which He told the disciples multiple times that He would give His life as a ransom for His chosen people. And so the incarnation of Jesus is the most grand and awesome theme to study, to meditate upon, to consider, to, to give hours of meditation upon. Salvation would not be possible if God had not become a man. Adam failed in the garden. Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. And so as we approach this topic, in a sense, we're treading on holy ground. We need to be careful with our minds to not go beyond what Holy Scripture teaches as we would begin to try to understand these things. Jesus Christ came down, down from heaven and took on human flesh that He might redeem the elect so that He might then take them to heaven. He died, the just for the unjust. So let's read the passage. Chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 to get the full context. So follow along with me as I read. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind 
maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this rich opportunity that we have to pause and to consider your word, to hear from you, from your authoritative word this day. Lord, give us receptive hearts that we might receive what you have for us this day. We pray, O God, that you would pour out the Holy Spirit upon this place, that we, that our eternal souls would be drawn closer to Christ in a more fuller understanding of the mysteries of the incarnation as a result of our time together this day that our hearts would be warmed in such a way that that we would understand our union with Christ being the great motivator for us, esteeming others as more important than ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would have your way this day, and for any who do not know you, that today might be the day of salvation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been continuing through, and remember Chapter 1, verse 27, there was a marked transition where he began with the imperatives, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He speaks of being united together, being locked arm in arm, as it were, being united together as we take the gospel to a lost and dying world. And then in verses 1 to 4, what he says essentially is that you can't be united and be effective out there if you're not united inside of here. And so that needs to be right in the corporate setting of the church and the individual relationships and marriages of this church. If that is flawed, then we are fractured and then we're cracked and we're going to be ineffective taking the gospel to a lost and dying world and living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so he says in verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. And in other words, fill my joy to the rim overflowing by being of the same mind, by literally being one soul, being soulmates one with another. Fill my joy to overflowing by doing this for the glory of God. And then he goes in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit. And we identified several possibilities that even among us, we might have selfish motives. Maybe we have secret desires to be noticed, to be appreciated. And nobody appreciates me and what I've done. My ministry gets ignored. And these types of things, and this is really rooted in selfishness. There may be some valid points there, but those are selfish motives. And conceit that somehow you need to be recognized and applauded. Paul says, no. Do nothing from those things. And then he uses this 
This but, it's a very strong adversative. It's, it's a strong contrast. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Literally, lowliness of mind, counting others as superior, taking that posture that you are not number one to esteem others. And then in verse 4, really an expansion, do not merely look out. Remember the scope? It's scopio. So as you're looking with binoculars, do not merely look out for your own interest, but for the interest of others. To think critically how you might be a blessing to them. And all of that, the imperative, hinged with all of those modifying participles, are based on verse 1. Therefore, if, it's, that it should be since there's great encouragement in Christ. We have consolation of love. We have fellowship of the Spirit and etc. That's the basis by which we do what He's commanded us to do. And so today, as we move in now, moving into this glorious masterpiece from verse 6 to 11, of which it's going to take us three weeks to fully unpack, as we begin to look at this, again, we must... Remember that we're treading on holy ground. This is a very complex paragraph. The, the most difficult one in uh, the whole book of Philippians and maybe one of the most difficult in all of the Apostle Paul's letters. Both Christians and non-Christians have been amazed by how this is structured. The rhythm, the, the, the uh, parallelism, and, and, and all of these types of things. All kinds of questions, all kinds of speculation. Was this a hymn that they sung before the Lord's Supper in the early church? Was this a poem that was written and all kinds of things? And it, it, it may have been, it probably was, something like that. It, it probably was something that Paul um, took and actually included in here um, because there's very rare words that are used here that it's unlike Paul. Certainly, uh, no matter what, it is a theological diamond and it is a gem. Um, whether how many stanzas you see and all of that, there's all kinds of speculation, at least three different dominant mindsets. It's not my purpose to unpack all of that stuff. We're just going to approach and teach the content of it. As I said, much ink has been devoted to these verses here. 25% of one of my favorite commentaries, uh, Peter O'Brien, the New Testament commentary of the Greek text, uh, has 25% of his commentary, his 550-page commentary, devoted to this section alone. And many other commentaries devote large chunks, especially the exegetical ones. Suffice it to say, whether it was a hymn, a poem, how it's included, how it's to be structured, it is included in this letter of Paul to Philippi. This letter of Paul to Philippi is included in the canon of the New Testament. Therefore, this is inspired and it is authoritative for us as the children of God in the New Covenant in the 21st century. The incarnation was an act of the pre-existent Son of God voluntarily humbling Himself, taking on a human body and a human nature, never ceasing to be God. He's all God, all man, but He takes on this humanity, and there's great mystery involved with that. He never gave up his deity when he became a man. We need to be very careful uh, to um, acknowledge that. But in submission to the Father's will, Christ limited his power and his knowledge 
throughout his earthly ministry of his own free will. Dennis Johnson has an excellent commentary as well. He sums up this section and says, In heightened language and in matchless eloquence, Paul tells the story of a king who stooped to serve and who by serving conquered. And isn't that the whole mystery of salvation? I mean, the whole mystery of salvation. I mean, the Jews are are awaiting a king to come and to conquer it. And instead, they get a servant. And one who gives his life for many, though it should be looked upon in that, 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 that first century, is weakness. And yet, he conquered through sacrifice. So, we're going to look at this under three heads today. Three Ds. First of all, the design of humility in verse 5. Secondly, the descent into humiliation, verse 6. And then the depths of humiliation, verse 7 and 8, of which we probably will not finish that section. So first of all, verse 5, the design of humility. Let's read it again. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This text is thoroughly theological, and yet it has ethical implications for us. What you see there translated, have this attitude, is actually an imperative. It's a command. This is what we are to do. Remember, it's that word that occurs, I believe it's ten times in Philippians, how we think. And it's very important that we think biblically, and he's telling us to think within ourselves as also Christ Jesus. This is the third imperative we have in this book, and it's translated the same way. The lexicon definition, have this mind, this attitude, careful thought, set your mind upon. So it's a very deliberate action of the mind. It's not something that just flutters in and flutters out. It recurs in Romans 8.5 in a completely different context. For those who, according to the, who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That is, they set their mind on those things of the flesh. They're focused upon that. But those according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit... Now, as we talked about last time, the imperative in verse 2, make my joy complete, and then the modifying, which carries the weight of that, is based, so the imperative, the command, is based on the indicative, which is verse 1. Because we have all of this encouragement in Christ and consolation of love and all of that, now we are to, because of that, now we put feet to the doctrine that we believe. Well, in verse 5 here, you've got this imperative. It's the only imperative between verses 5 and 11. And verse 5 serves as a hinge verse. In a sense, it's drawing a conclusion to verses 1 to 4. But in a sense, it's also introducing verses 6 to 11. And so it serves as a very unique hinge verse, as it were. He shows us how Christ's mindset of selfless love finds its foolish expression expression in the incarnation. Humiliation leading to exaltation to the heights of glory as he goes all the way to verse 11. So what better way to reinforce this thought than reminding this church of the attitude that Christ had and to encourage that we would have that same attitude based on our union with Christ, based on us being united to him. It comes to us in this context, of course, of motivating Christians to true biblical humility for the sake of unity. He seeks to give them a new way of looking at this, to 
to emphasize it even all the more by penning this masterpiece that he puts before us. He presents Christ as the supreme, the par excellence example, but he's more than an example, as we'll see. Now those who are united to Christ will live like Christ did. If we're going to be claimed to be followers of Christ, disciples of Christ, we, we really do what he calls us to do. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? And so we will live as he did. 1 John 2.6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That there's the, that there's the ethical implication of being a child of God. Now, traditionally over the last several hundred years, uh, this text has been thought to just be this, like Christ is an example, but it's more than that, as I've been saying. And in the last 50 years, theological development has understood this more to be, and it has to do with the grammar of which verb you supply in the original Greek, has more to do based on our union with Christ. Yes, he's an example, but because we're united to him, that is the motive that we go forth to do what we are called to do. For example, even the NAS, which I still think is the best translation available, the ESV being very close second, has have this attitude in yourselves which was also. Was is not in the original. There's a verb that is to be supplied there. And so it could be have this attitude in yourselves which was the attitude which was, the attitude which was in Christ Jesus, which I think gets it closer. And grammatically that makes more sense to do that. If in case I lost you, let me just make it concrete and give you two possible paraphrases of this verse. Think among yourselves as is necessary to think in view of your corporate union with Christ. Or, simply put, and this is Gordon Fee and Silva follows this, be so disposed towards one another as is proper for those who are united to Christ. So the point is, it's communicating essentially the same thing, but there's an added idea of our union with Christ, which is very, very important. To put it another way, and maybe this will be more concrete, it's not just that we have this example where we can fall into moralism, like you know, David and Goliath, go be a, a, you know, a David, or go be a Dan, dare to be a Daniel, and all of that. No, there, there's, there's more of the idea of conformity to the likeness of Christ with this view. And I like that. It's not just an example. It should also reconfigure the inclinations of our heart and the way we think towards others. Does that make sense? Because that's the very verb that he's using here. That It's a readjustment, as it were, of how we think towards others and how we treat them. And so you see, it really is sort of a conclusion of this, do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others, and then to think this way as Christ Jesus thought, and then goes on to explain how did he think and what did he do. Romans 15 and verse 5, very similar context, where he says, be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Two verses before, he says, even Christ did not please himself. So we're to be of the same mind with one another according to, that's the measure, Christ Jesus. And then, by the way, if it's according to that measure, even Jesus did not seek to please himself. In the upper room discourse, John 13, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, 
got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, and he girded himself. What a demonstration of humility in action. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, Paul tells the Corinthian church. So the motive is not just that it's an example, but it's adjusting your mindset of how you treat others. That it's not from selfishness. It's not from selfish conceit. It's not numero uno, uno, and that's all that's important to me. But it's looking out for ways to glorify God and serving others. Do you do that? Is that an area that you need to be more purposeful in? Well, let's move on to verse 6. The design or the model of humility and now the descent into humiliation. And really this descent is from glory all the way to humanity. That's what I have in view here. And this is really a mystery here. And in verse 6 he says, Who, speaking of Christ, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Although he existed in the form of God. The word that is used here for form is morphe. You know that word probably. And um, though that word occurs in compound words in the Greek New Testament, it only occurs here in verse 6 and in verse 7 um, in the whole Bible, aside from a reference in Mark 16, which I don't believe is, should be in the canon. Um, so, morphe refers to this outward manifestation of an inward reality. So in other words, what appears on the outside is also true on the inside. The other word for form, which is much more common, is schema in the Greek. And this has, that has the idea of an outward form, but it is subject to change. And it's said of Jesus, actually in the same context, that he being made in the likeness of man, the schema of man. Okay? And he had that outward format of man. But here he existed in the very form of of God. Colossians 1 and verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. John 17, in his high priestly prayer, Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world was. He existed in the form of God. Many heresies have arisen, brethren, by denying the deity of Christ. They probably come to your door still today. And they've just taken different names through the centuries. But the same heresy of denying Christ has just been put all kinds of labels on it. Whatever guru that pops up, and then there's a new cult named after that guru. But there's also heresy specifically related to this text that says that Jesus gave up his deity when he became a man. So we need to be very careful not to tread down that path. Peter O'Brien, again in his excellent commentary on the Greek text, says this is best interpreted with the background of the glory of God, that shining light in which, according to the Old Testament, was pictured of the pre-existent Christ clothed in the garments of divine majesty and splendor. Calvin brings out the idea here, this form of God pictures something of the majesty of the second person of the Trinity. Something that we really can't even begin to fathom because our finite minds are so limited. 
And so, the pre-existent Christ clothed in the garments of divine majesty and splendor. And so, this glorious form, who although he existed in the form of God, presupposes that he's pre-existent with God. Remember, he told the Pharisees in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was what? I am. (laughs) I always was. Who were you to sit there and, and talk back to the Son of God? But not only is he um, pre-existent with God, he's of the same nature of God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Book of Hebrews chapter 1. I submit to you, for as a side note, uh, we're not going to go down this rabbit trail, the first three verses of Hebrews has so much doctrine in it to keep you busy for a couple months. Um, the cessation of supernatural gifts certainly is here. Uh, the inspired word of God being completed. All of that, how Christ is the exact representation of, of the Father. How he upholds all things by the word of his power, his sovereign providence, his omnipotence. How he is a high priest. He's made purification of the sins of the people, sat down. Anyway, I digress. But the point that I want you to look at is this. In verse 2, In these last days he's spoken to us in his Son, whom he has appointed heir over all things, through whom also the world was made. And he is the radiance of his glory. Boy, that's a phrase you just want to chew on and meditate on. He is the radiance of his glory. Of course, we know John 1, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But then he says, the exact representation of his nature. That word, exact representation, only occurs here in the Greek New Testament. The word actually has at its root the idea of a mold that was used for coinage. So stamp, 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 stamp. Pull out a quarter out of your pocket. It's, it's going to look just like the person sitting next to you quarter, right? Because it's the same exact representation. Maybe a different wear or whatever. It was used of, of a wax seal that would be put on letters. The exact representation of this king's stamp that was there. And so when you think about now, this is speaking of Jesus that he's in the form of God. He's the exact same nature as God. That, that he's got the stamped image of the Father upon him as the second person of the Trinity. Very powerful stuff. John MacArthur says, in light of the profound reality of Jesus' full and uncompromised deity, his incarnation was the most profound possible humiliation. Do you see what he's saying there? The more you meditate on the glory of God and His attributes, and you meditate upon His unspeakable splendor and eternity past, and then you you understand the depravity and the sinfulness of human man, and, and, and the depravity since Adam's sin spread to all men, the depravity that's existed in this world, and that perfect Son of God, the sinless One, the eternal Son of God, of which there's perfect harmony and communion and fellowship amongst the three persons of the Trinity comes and dawns human flesh and is born a man. That is the farthest possible stretch that we can possibly imagine. 
And that's what the incarnation was, brethren. Brothers and sisters, consider that the infinite became finite in his humanity. He never ceased to be God. The one that was sinless, the one that was perfect, the one that never sinned and kept God's law perfectly, the only human that ever walked upon this earth who kept God's law perfectly, took all of the sin of God's people upon his own back upon the cross. That divine transaction of all of the sin of all of God's people being poured out upon him. Those three hours, six hours on the cross, the last three hours of darkness, utter despair, people wailing and being afraid because of the darkness that came in the noonday. Graves eventually being opened and corpses coming out and all of these supernatural events such as earthquakes and all the such. The Father pouring out His unmitigated anger upon His own Son as He would be the substitute for His people. He would pay for every one of our sins. The sins committed this very morning. The sins committed this last week. The sins that you've committed in your whole life. He paid for all of them. Does that not move you people? Every single sin, not only that we've committed in the past, but to now know being children of God and being adopted into His family, that yes, even though I desire holiness and even though I desire to glorify God, I am still going to stumble into sin. And He's paid for those too. Your salvation is eternally secure. Nothing can take it away. No demon, no persecutor. We're praying for the persecuted church today. There's nothing that can take it away. No persecutor can beat it out of you. They can't drive it out of you. You maintain your confession until the end. He gives grace to maintain that profession. Oh, and you hear of how God works in the midst of affliction and in the midst of those circumstances. Supernatural power that God gives to endure pain, to endure flames being burned to the stake. This comes only from God. But brethren, the incarnation is so marvelous because that was necessary for our salvation. And our salvation is secure because of it. When He said on the cross, it is finished. There's no more atonement for sin that you can offer. There's no more penance that you can offer. This whole idea of self-flagellating yourself when you sin or you have a bad week is of the devil. Yes, flee to Christ. Yes, get on your knees. Yes, weep for your sin. And then beg for renewal. Looking to Christ afresh. Because the power of His atonement, the power of His imputed righteousness does not waver with your levels of entering sin and going out of sin. Or to put it another way, it does not waver with the level of assurance that you may have. He who knew no sin became sin. It's, 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 it's huge enough that he would humiliate himself by just becoming man and living among sinners on this earth, but then to take all of that sin upon him for the purpose that we might be the righteousness of God. We must move on. Yet he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus existed as God being set aside. He set aside His divine prerogatives, His divine rights. He never denied His true deity during His earthly ministry. Can you point to anywhere in Holy Scripture where He's saying He's not God? Of course not. 
Always you see is a resounding again and again and again, sometimes by very clear statements, other times by implication, as he's forgiving sins. Who else can forgive sins? Why do you think the Pharisees got so irate? Who is he that he could forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And they're so hard-headed that they couldn't understand, this is God in the flesh. This is Messiah who has promised to come. I and the Father am one. That's pretty clear. (laughs) I and the Father am one. John 10, John 14, 9. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? His deity was on display again and again. I just point you to one example. Luke 5. They're fishing all night. Peter's there, right? There's no catch whatsoever. And Jesus comes along and what does he say? Throw the net in one more time. And you can almost hear the cynicism in Peter's voice, you know. Nevertheless, as you will, Lord, you know, we've toiled all the night. This is a paraphrase. He throws it in. The nets are ripping. There's such a catch of fish. And what happens? Peter falls down before him. I'm a sinful man. He was face to face with deity, the creator who knew all things and knew exactly where every fish in the sea was, and he knew that there was a catch to be had there. Face to face with the creator, the disciples on the Emmaus Road after the resurrection, having a conversation and all of that, and finally Jesus reveals himself and they say, did not our hearts burn within us as we were talking to him? This idea of to be grasped here in the um, English translation, actually it's a thing to be grasped is one word, another very rare word. This is, uh, anyway, um, it means to violently seize property or it can also mean, it's a complex word, to win a prize or to seize a prize. And so if you read it here, so he did not, so he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be seized. Uh, or maybe an advantage to be asserted might be one way of thinking of that, or to be exploited. The whole idea of equality, it means completely equal, equal in size, quantity, quality, character, number, all of that. It's a very, I mean, it means equal. Equal means equal. He was equal with God. We're going to be singing this hymn probably next month, I would imagine. Hark. The herald angels, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Isn't that a glorious statement? about Jesus and his incarnation. So that's the attitude of humility, brethren. It begins with a complete humbling of anything that's regard to exalting self and pushing that away. It's modeled after the incarnation, as it were. It begins with this unselfishness that we are to have. And how about you? Ask yourself, are there certain rights that you've demanded would be given to you this past week? Are there certain times where, where you're thinking, if only people realized how wonderful I am, <laughs> nobody seems to realize. Why don't they recognize my work at the office? 
You know, why don't why why isn't this recognized in the church? Why am I not honored as I should be? Maybe you're thinking. And that's in a broad sense, maybe in the church, and hopefully that's very rare. Uh, But what about in our own homes? Bring it closer to home. If only my wife, such and such, appreciated this, or my husband, da-da-da-da-da, and you fill in the blank, or my children are so unappreciative, and all of these things, we need to realize that our rights are so small when we consider who we are in Christ. We are the children of God. We are to demonstrate this humility, this selflessness, and the not selfishness. We're to model this because we are united to Christ. Well, the design of humility, verse 5, the descent of humiliation, uh, verse 6, and now the depths of humiliation, and we're just going to barely touch the first phrase today in verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. Notice the word but right there. That's Allah in the original. It means a strong contrast. So he emptied himself. Although he was full deity, he completely emptied himself. This is the, the, the verb konos, um, which we talked about last time. It means a complete emptying. That's where we get this idea of this theological term, the kenosis, the self-emptying and the incarnation of the Son of God. It's an intense expression. Not this uh, kenosis heresy, which says he emptied himself of his deity. No, we would deny that. We We don't hold to that whatsoever. But he certainly did empty himself of several things. He emptied himself of his riches. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... For your sake, what? He became poor so that you through his poverty might be rich. This is Jesus who owned nothing. He had no 401k. He had no investment real estate. He didn't have a big SUV or a big truck with big tires or a sports car or any of these types of things. He didn't have any of those things. In fact, he owned nothing during his ministry. Where he was born was not even owned by his parents in a manger. The colt that was used for the triumphal entry was not even yours, was not even his. He emptied himself of all things. And not only did he empty himself of all the divine prerogatives, as we said earlier, he took upon himself all of our sin. That is the wonder of the incarnation. It's a self-renunciation and a refusal to use what is rightfully his. A refusal to cling to the advantages and privileges that he had as God. Consider it like this. A king of a territory who dresses as a common man and he begins to just mingle among them in an area that they don't, where they would not recognize him. And it's one thing just to become a commoner right, among the people But then he willingly becomes a slave of one of those men and then ultimately gives his life. That's the picture that we're trying to wrap our minds around in the idea of the incarnation. Well, we must conclude uh, for today. We'll continue unpacking verses 7 and 8 next week. What amazing love the Lord has shown us, brethren. Oh, that he would humble himself to that that grand extent from the glory of heaven 
at the right hand of God and the beautiful fellowship of the triune God and come to this earth to take on human flesh. How he humbled himself. What can we say to these things? We can't freely articulate it. I've struggled to try to articulate this, even this hour, this past hour. But Paul says it greatly in Romans 13. I'm sorry, 11.33. Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. Doesn't that sum it up? You're not going to be able to fathom it completely. You might know it theologically. You may know it confessionally. And you may know those things. And that's true. And that's that's fine. But to fully understand it is beyond our comprehension. J.I. Packer has said, The Divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than to lie and to stare and wiggle and make noises, needing to be fed, changed, and talked to like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. And that is a profound statement. And the more I've had a lot of time to think about this, and I'm probably more staggered than I was when I began. Brethren, let's remember the context in which this shows up. To do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarding one another is more important than yourselves, is superior to yourselves. Not looking out for your personal interest, but for the interest of others. And if you're here and you're outside of Christ, you don't know anything of this amazing love of which we've been talking about. And so I beg you to flee to Christ. Jesus says, anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me. Isaiah 55, ho, everyone who is thirsty, let him come. Let him come to be filled. You see, Christianity is not a fad. It is not a type of jeans that you go and put on at the mall or a dress or whatever. It's, it, it's a complete revolutionary type of life. It's something that happens on the inside where the heart of stone is taken out and now a heart of flesh. And now the things that we used to hate, we now love. Because we would run from God. Because we're at enmity with God. But now we love Him and we want to worship Him. Listen to Samuel Rutherford. By the way, read the letters of Samuel Rutherford. Having been put in prison, I think in 1637 in Scotland and in prison for some years, wrote, many, many letters, hundreds of letters to his church members who were there at the church, letters filled with Christ, though he was from in, in a cold, damp dungeon. He says this, the Lord, or there is as much in our Lord's pantry as will satisfy all his children, as much wine in his cellar as will quench all of their thirst. Hunger on, for there is meat and hungering for Christ. Go never from him, but seek him who is yet pleased with the importunity of hungry souls until he fills you. If he delays, yet do not go away, even if you faint at his feet. What he's saying is there's enough to satisfy your soul, but it may not be in the drive through at Burger King, have it your way type of thing. It may not come right here at this moment, but hunger on and keep longing for Christ. And He will satisfy you. And if you're outside of Christ, flee to Him. For God demonstrated His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died.
for us. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for the rich opportunity to just begin to look and unpack a couple of verses from this rich text. Lord, would you continue to amaze us by your love as manifested in the mystery of the incarnation, God becoming man. And Lord, especially as the holiday season is upon us, Lord, may we be mindful of these things. Lord, may we be utterly astonished at the depths of humiliation that you did to rescue us. Oh Lord, we are so undeserving. Lord, make us those who cheerfully obey, who glorify you in all things, and who manifest that by a walking in humility and a desiring unity in the church and in our families. Lord, we pray that you would strike the one and not give him rest who may be here and who is outside of Christ. Give him no rest in his bosom, Lord, until he would cry out and hungry, hunger to be satisfied with what only you can give. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.